It's great to see you this morning, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth and uh, in the third chapter, which I'm going to read, and it's page 223 in your, uh, in your pew Bible. We've been going through this story, the book of Ruth, and uh, we've learned how Ruth um, pledged herself to her mother-in-law after her mother-in-law was widowed and also lost her children, one of whom had been married to Ruth, so Ruth was a widow also. She pledged herself to Naomi, to Naomi's care. They came back home. Home was Bethlehem. And there she met, as she was gleaning in a field, the, the owner of the field, a man named Boaz. He took an immediate and profound interest in her. Very honorable. Now, as we come to the third chapter, this whole story uh, suddenly becomes quite a tale of love and romance. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you you have not gone out after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. This was about 30 pounds. Then she went into the city of Bethlehem. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, mother-in-law said, how do you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her saying that these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. 
Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as we're going through this Advent season, these four weeks leading up to Christmas, we have been focused on Bethlehem and this amazing, beautiful, grace-filled story that happened there. But it's in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. It involves Ruth and Boaz, not Joseph and Mary. It leads to the birth of Obed and not to the birth of Jesus. But even though these two stories are separated by many centuries, over 10 centuries for sure, I think, they're very closely linked. Ruth tells the story of how God preserved the messianic line in the dark period of the judges in that history. And the Gospels tell us how he fulfilled the promise of the Messiah in the birth of Jesus. So really, the nativity story of Obed foreshadows the far greater nativity story of Jesus. Ruth, this book, they both really brought light to the darkness when these births occurred and these, as these stories unfolded, they both really brought light. God's love, his chesed, is, is surely on, on display in, in, in imparting and in bestowing and ensuring salvation. In both of these stories, both Bethlehem stories, we see what loving kindness really looks like. And this is the love that God calls us to, calls us to experience in himself when he calls us to himself. And this is the love he calls us also to express to others. But as I said when I read, this chapter of Ruth in chapter 3, it becomes a, a, a love story. It's a love story of Ruth and, and Boaz in which this, this love of God that is so free and selfless really defines and shapes their romance. And by saying that this is a free love, I mean, there was nothing that was compelling it. There was no moral obligation, but rather this is a love that leads to vows of moral obligation. And when I say that this was a selfless love, I mean that for Ruth and Boaz both, this love was surely focused on the good of one another. And in a day when there's so many confusing messages about how husbands and wives should treat each other, how they should love each other. This passage really confirms what the Bible everywhere teaches, which is that marriage is, is not only perfectly suited for, but that God created marriage for the living out for the display of loving kindness. And that this reflects the love that God has for his own people. And it's interesting to me that here in the Old Testament, we find the clearest illustration, I think in the Bible, I could be wrong, but I think it's probably the clearest illustration of Paul's New Testament words to wives and husbands. Because in Ephesians 5, after Paul calls all believers to submit to one another out of love for Christ, he then goes on, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so this morning, I want us to think about this illustration in Ruth 3 as a, as a profound expression of the things that Paul would later teach. Our story begins with Naomi, uh, the mother-in-law, playing matchmaker and coaching Ruth. And keep in mind that Ruth was a Moabitess. She was not from, she's not from Israel. She wasn't as culturally aware at all as her mother-in-law was. And so, so Naomi begins to coach Ruth. She tells Ruth to bathe, to anoint herself. That would be with a scented olive oil. And then to put on her cloak, which presumably is a fresh cloak, and then go down to the threshing floor where Boaz would be spending the night. Now, of course, there's a question of what this actually means. Was, he, was she telling him, you know, gussy yourself up, you know, look your very best, darling, and then go down and, 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 and see that man? Well, I suppose some of that was there. But I think the significance of this was much greater and actually wasn't, that that was not exactly the point. There's one other time in the Old Testament when you find this sequence of verbs used. To bathe, to anoint, and to clothe yourself. And that was after the death of David's son who had been born to Bathsheba. To the astonishment of those around him, when he learned that his son had died, he got up, he bathed, he anointed himself, and he changed his clothes, 2 Samuel 12, 20. And the reason this so astonished those around him was because it was so soon after the son had died. And it, what it meant that he would bathe himself, that he would anoint himself, that he would put on fresh clothing was that his period of mourning was over. He was no longer in a period of mourning. And Naomi was coaching Ruth to end her period of mourning the death of her husband as well. And then to make it clear to Boaz that this was now the case so that he was free to approach her honorably and not in a way that was disgraceful. Well, Naomi's coaching of Ruth went further still. She told Ruth to sneak up on Boaz when he's asleep. The ESV says softly. No, she was, well, fine. Of course it was soft because she was sneaky. She was sneaking up on him in his sleep. And she told Ruth, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Now, I think what probably was meant here, the word feet could mean legs, include the lower extremities. And I think probably what was happening here was that, that she wanted, Naomi wanted Ruth to uncover the lower part or the skirt of his outer garment. The outer garment that Boaz would be using to cover himself. You know, at home, and I don't wear my robe to church for you today, but I will tell you that on these cold winter days, I like to wear my fleece robe around the house, you know, and it ties here, and it's tied up here, but, you know, it kind of opens, it's, and they call that a skirt in the old days. And so when she says to uncover his feet, she doesn't mean make Boaz naked 
in any respect, but to open up this cloak that would naturally open up in the lower part. She wasn't coming to the threshing floor as a prostitute to seduce and proposition Boaz. But she was coming as a virtuous woman for the purpose that he would marry her. But still, this action was very risky, obviously, very easily misinterpreted, very uh, easily subject to, to cruel uh, uh, gossip. But Naomi adds one other thing when she speaks to Ruth, that after Ruth has done all that Naomi coached her to do, she said, he, Boaz, will tell you what to do. And Ruth replies, all that to his, her, his, her mother-in-law, all that you say I will do. So here, here was Ruth's commitment to approach Boaz in such a vulnerable matter and to place the outcome in his hands. And I don't know how else to describe this. I don't know how else I would, would better illustrate this profoundly submissive posture of Ruth toward this man she wants to have as her husband. So let's see what happened next. At midnight, Boaz is startled awake. Likely, I think, perhaps, because he was chilled. But imagine the shock of then rolling over to wrap himself up back again, you know, in this cloak, only to find out as he's trying to cover himself that he can't do it. She's lying on the fringe. He blurts out, who are you? Man, I don't know if you ever suffered from this, you husbands, but when I sleep at night, my wife pulls all those covers on her. I'm going like, I also have said, who are you? Just kidding. Honey, I'm kidding. I'm not really kidding. And Ruth replies, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now the significance of that opened cloak becomes quite clear because the bottom of that cloak the skirt or the hem of a garment was called a wing same word is for bird and she was inviting him to include her even as he covered himself she was communicating to him i am here i'm ruth and i am your servant and i am here so you can draw me close so you can enfold me in your cloak I give you permission but what's more it was said of a man who took a woman to be his wife that he had spread his wings over her and so when you think about what was happening here for the way that Ruth had bathed and anointed and clothed herself for the, way, for the setting that she had created to be by his side. And now by her words, she was doing everything possible to communicate to Boaz that she was as fully committed to being his wife if he would agree 
as she had been to being the servant of Naomi. That to Boaz, she would say what she had said to Naomi earlier. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you sleep, I will sleep. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. And in one other respect, Ruth's language could not have been more expressive. When Boaz had first met her, he had praised Ruth. He had celebrated her for coming to the Lord, and this is the way he'd put it, to the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The same language. So now she's taking Boaz's own words and she's applying them to Boaz. She believes that this caring God, whom she now worships and trusts, would have Boaz to be her husband. That, that he would be God's means of refuge for her. And this is confirmed by her following words of explanation. Because she says to him, for you are a redeemer. In other words, you are a near relative of my deceased husband. I am a childless widow. It is right. It is honorable under your law, the law of God, for you to take me and have me as your wife. It was the custom. So much conveyed. So powerfully. And so few words. So few actions. By the setting. Now I want you to think with me for a couple moments about Ruth. Who so genuinely offered herself to Boaz. What do we say about her? And I'd like you all to think about this with me. This was a profound, it was profoundly submissive, everything that she did. But her submission to Boaz was not offered at the expense of her dignity or of her character. It involved no surrender of her sense of who she was or her value or her strength or even her initiative. In fact, she's the one who's initiated this entire thing. She could not have been more honest. She could not have been more direct. She could have been not, not have been more persuasive and intentional in the way she spoke to this man. She really was the initiator. She is inviting him to marry her. She provides him with the justification for doing so. So when we think of Ruth coming to Boaz and relating to him in this way that is profoundly and beautifully submissive, as a wife would do for her husband. That's what's being pictured here. That's what's being rehearsed on the threshing floor. As she does this, there is no, you don't hear any of this. None of this is seen, this I can't live without you. None of this is seen. You have no idea what you've been missing, baby. There is no attempt at seduction, but there is the appeal of a godly woman to the integrity and the decency of a godly man. And at the same time, there really is no doubt from the text that there was a lively sexual chemistry between them, as there should be. In fact, when I read this text, when I read it, 
on how tender it is, how intimate it is. It makes me almost want to turn away. And not, I, I don't think I'm supposed to be looking at this. Not because it's dirty or sordid or anything. Because it is beautiful and, and intimate. And this is, this is the expression of man and woman as, as sexual beings in their love for each other. But they do not cross boundaries. I feel the same way with some of the marriages I've done. I'm not going to mention any of you here. But when I've said to you your weddings... You know, husband, you may kiss your bride. There are some of you I turned away because the passion and the love, the deep desire you have for each other, the willingness you have to give yourselves to each other, it's displayed in public, which is supposed to be. Uh, but, you know, some kisses at weddings are pecks on the cheek. Uh, some kisses are, are, are full of that chemistry I refer to. And for those, I look, I feel like I should not even be watching. And I feel it because it's a holy act. Because it is sacred and an intimate, it is an intimate exchange. It is so beautiful. I'm not supposed to be part of it. But I do love to see husbands and wives love each other. But Naomi later tells Ruth then, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. All I can say is, you betcha, he is not. <laughs> he ain't waiting for this. He's not going to put this issue off. There's a problem. We'll talk about it next week. There was another redeemer in the picture, and the family was closer. He's not putting this off. And what of Boaz? Let's think about her. Boaz is overwhelmed. He's absolutely overwhelmed by Ruth's kindness. He feels so blessed and so undeserving. In response, he, plays, he prays God's blessing on her. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, which is her kindness, Ruth's kindness to Boaz, greater than the first, which was Ruth's kindness to Naomi. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz recognizes that what Ruth has done, what she said, is God's kindness to him. It's not some ploy. Her humility toward him deeply humbles him toward her. Boaz is a godly man. He has wealth, yes. He's highly regarded in the community, yes. But he does not, he does not think more highly of himself than he ought. He's humbly realistic. He's a mortal man. He's considerably older than she is. He sees the bags under his eyes. He sees that his biceps are now triceps. He sees all of this. He knows that there are many younger, energetic, handsome men that she might choose from who would look to be far better for her, far more satisfying for her. Why would she ever Desire him. She listens to Maroon 5. He listens to the Jackson 5. She likes Rascal Flats. He's still listening to Flat and Scruggs. And yet, she would condescend to him. And so he responds to her. And now, daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. Now, wait a minute. 
He says, I will do all that you ask. Isn't that what the handmaiden is supposed to say to her master or to her Lord or to her husband? I will do all that you ask. But that's what Boaz says. And he adds, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now here's a woman who's come to him, who's known in relation to him as a scavenger in his fields, a foreign woman from a pagan background, who's destitute and poor, And here he extols her and lifts her up. And he lifts her up by bestowing upon her the same high and lofty description that was actually applied to Boaz himself earlier. That she is worthy. That she is noble. That she is valiant. So Ruth has come regarding herself as the lowly one. But now Boaz regards himself as a lowly one for the humble offer that she would make to him. He really does undo him. It's pretty amazing. He realizes he, he has more than met his match. That he would be marrying, she thinks she's, you know, she thinks she's, if this works out, she'll be marrying above himself. He knows he will be marrying above himself. That's the way it's supposed to be. And in all this, Ruth was simply being the woman she was with the man she would marry. She'd never be like this with anybody else. And Boaz was being the man he was with the woman he would cover with his wings. So you tell me who's more lowly. The one who introduces herself as his servant or as his handmaiden or he who positions himself below his handmaiden to do all that she has asked. That's the way it is for husbands and wives who love each other with the love of God. Now for a moment, I want you to think with me about Mary and Joseph and how Joseph acted similarly on Mary's behalf. Mary was another woman who assumed the position of handmaid. Same would have been the same term in Hebrew. Of course, New Testament's in Greek. Handmaid. Handmaiden to the Lord first, no doubt, but also to her husband. When Joseph first learned that his betrothed, he wasn't, hadn't physically consummated a marriage, that his betrothed, Mary, was pregnant and didn't understand why, Matthew tells us that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was unwilling to put her to disgrace, but he resolved to end the betrothal quietly. Isn't that remarkable? And when the angel of the Lord told Joseph that the child conceived in Mary was by the Holy Spirit and not to be afraid to take her as his wife, he did so immediately for her protection, to guard her, her reputation, her very being. She couldn't walk around pregnant and unmarried or pregnant and rejected by her betrothed. That would not work in that culture and day. And with that same devotion to Mary, the scripture says, and this is the wording, he did not have sexual relations with her until Mary had given birth. 
He would not do that. And he would not do that for her. She was quite preoccupied and overwhelmed with a state that she was in. And when she did give birth to Jesus, the Bible says that Joseph called the infant's name Jesus. Now, the angel said what to call him, but Joseph placed the name on the child as a father would his son. Along with Mary, he would raise Jesus as his own son. That devotion, all of that commitment. And I want to say that in all of these things, Joseph was caring for Mary and he was upholding her. And in all these things, he was assuming the lowly position with his wife and assuring her of his respect and his love. He was honoring her and supporting her for who God called her to be. He was playing the man. And I suspect Mary must have felt so overwhelmed in love to have Joseph love her on terms that he had not signed up for when they were first engaged. But you think about this with me today. Isn't this the case? Isn't this what marriage brings? Challenges and sometimes children we had not signed up for. And isn't this the love that we commit ourselves to in our marriage vows for better and for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. This is love that is free and selfless. And so the woman says, the wife says to her husband, I submit to you. The husband says to his wife, I devote myself to you. The woman says, I humble myself. The husband says, I am humbled and will cherish you. The one says, I will honor you. The husband says, I will esteem you above myself. The sermon today and the message that I'm giving is not making a case for traditional marriage because traditional marriage can mean so many different things and does mean different things in different family histories. I'm making the case for biblical marriage. And this Advent season... I just encourage us all, let's remind ourselves of what it is to love our spouse. Let's pray together. Father, I just bring this example, this amazing illustration of Ruth and Boaz before us because it's, it's in Scripture for us. This, uh, this sort of rehearsal, this beautiful waltz that occurred on the threshing floor, uh, this dance of romance and, uh, and love, uh, not a matter of swooning, but of, of dedication and wisdom and goodness and purity and devotion and honesty. From those unions, the most joy comes in the intimacies of marriage. And there's joy in the children who are born. And those couples are able to handle the challenges that come, whatever they may be. Because your chesed, your grace is upon them. And it is within them. 
and it is among them. They share it with each other. Father, I pray that you would be at work in all of our marriages at Atonement. I pray that you'd be at work in those of us who are not married, but maybe going to get married, and as we think about what it is to select a spouse, it's choosing someone to love this way and to be loved this way by. I pray for those who ache in their marriages. I pray for their relief. I pray for their comfort. I pray that you would heal and strengthen marriages everywhere throughout our church. I pray that you would protect and guard all the dear souls in marriages. I pray that you would act and not allow these deep vulnerabilities of husbands with wives and wives with husbands to become occasions for neglect or mistreatment. Because this marriage is precious. This marriage is amazing. It is how Christ loves his church and how the church loves its Savior. Please, Lord, lead us and teach us. Help us be biblical in our resolve in marriage. Forgive us for our sins. Help us forgive one another. But help us not only to ask for forgiveness, but to repent zealously. In Jesus' name, amen.